Thanks for listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. In today's episode, we're super excited to share an interview that I did with Alina Kim and Kim Stoker. Alina Kim is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine, and the author of Adopted Territory, Transnational Korean Adoptees and the Politics of Belonging, which was published by Duke University Press in 2010. Kim Stoker is an educator, editor, and poet. Stoker lived and taught in Korea for almost two decades, 10 years of which she was actively involved with Adoptee Solidarity Korea before recently moving back to the States. So I had the pleasure and privilege of chatting with Alina and Stoker about adoptee-run creative hubs in Seoul during the early 2000s, including Spy Lounge, Kimura Buell, formerly known as Mihi Natalie Lemoyne, a co-founder of Goal, and by all accounts, a social force of nature. Critical adoption studies, activism, kinship, and living in Korea as a non-quote-unquote standard variety Korean. Okay, yes. so. Testing, testing. Woohoo. Just speak normally. Hey, that is how <laughs> I normally speak. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> Thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me today. Um, so I'm here with Alina Kim and Kim Stoker. Um, so first off, how are you finding Melbourne? Uh, first off, I'm finding it cold. <laughs> <laughs> But it's nice. I mean, I want to explore some more, hopefully, later this afternoon. Um, but yeah, it's my first time in Australia, so I'm very happy yeah. to be here. Awesome. Yeah, it is exciting to be here. Um, this is my second time here, and the last time I was here was 10 years ago. And I just got in less than, oh, about 24 hours ago. And yes, it's been cold and rainy. <laughs> <laughs> so how and when did you two first meet? Do you remember? Because I remember. You you go first then. <laughs> do you, well, okay, think about it. Well, I was talking for some reason with somebody oh, else remember. about where we first I totally met. remember. So my recollection is in Washington, D.C. in 2000, I think 2003, at the Khan Conference, which is K-A-A-N, and it's a Korean-American Adopted, Adopted Family, Family Network. Adoptee Network, yeah. Adoptee Network. And um, I was curating something there... And that was my very first adoptee event kind of thing. And I was sort of a very reluctant participator in adoptee stuff at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember meeting you and a couple other people at that conference. Hmm. Do you remember that? That conference was mem- memorable for me because I had borrowed my brother's car to drive down there from New York. And oh. I locked myself out of his car. <laughs> oh, no. Like at 9 p.m. or something. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> or like there's a whole day of activity and I met all these people, probably including you, and then I was like, locked out of this car. Huh. So that was fun. So actually, I do not exactly remember meeting you there. I bet you but don't I, because you didn't. Okay, so what I remember is you, so I'm, Kate was there, Mihi was there, Maya Weimer was there, Hosu Kim was there, and I think you were with Hosu. Oh. And I had met you guys all together, and I had a certain impression anyway. <laughs> but I remember just like it was this very sort of adoptees here and then these you know like Korean Korean Americans here and it was sort of like I just remember you being very like I, I probably didn't speak with you directly but you were there sort of we observing I mean, yes. we were like introduced yeah because I think you knew me yeah so pro- that was Kate. 2003 I think it was I think that's the first time I met Kate though but she was then. friendlier than you were. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm sure I wasn't friendly. No, I'm sure I was not friendly. No, but friendly. then, um, so I had, because I had, um, yeah, I went there. At that point, I was probably doing my dissertation fieldwork, yeah. but I hadn't, um, but I had been doing previous research in Korea and had met Mihi in like 2000, I think. Um, I don't remember all the other people, but yeah, I had kind of met enough people by that point that I was like, you know, there's... Snowball has the social science word for it, but whatever. I was just kind of like networking, and um, but I actually the more distinct memory I have of meeting Stoker was in Korea, mm-hmm. in Itaewon, mm-hmm. at a bar. <laughs> and Stoker, um, do you remember this? No, <laughs> but I'm listening. <laughs> but that was it. I mean, it was you know, it was just like a was it conversation. at that? club that we did the sort of arty or like yeah probably 
uh, yeah. spy club. Yes, yeah, spy, spy club. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at that point, and then then I was doing fieldwork in Korea. So there were particular places like Spy and other watering holes that adoptees hung out at, and, mm-hmm. um, and uh, actually a bunch of people living in Itaewon who would gather somewhat regularly. Yeah. You know, so you kind of always you know had people that you recognized in various places. Mm-hmm. So um, that was an interesting. I can't even remember what we called those nights, but there were a few organizers, and there was a Belgian adoptee photographer who was managing this club in Itaewon. And so through people's connections with him, I think it was every Sunday night or every other Sunday night we would hold these great. People could read poetry or fiction, and then um, I think that was mostly it. Was or or give presentations on stuff or film screen movies. Yeah, mm-hmm. in this club. And so this is where a lot of the people that were kind of, in the early 2000s, a lot of um, people were moving, second generation Koreans or adopted Koreans were coming to Korea to study or whatever. And so it was kind of an exciting time and a much smaller community. So a lot of people Mm -hmm. knew each other, especially if you were living in Seoul. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think also because of Mihi, there was a kind, she was like a magnet for like other creative folks who would come through and, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, you're reminding me that like there was like a there was like a kind of critical mass of adoptee artists yep. who were living Korea or at least coming frequently, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, it was yeah it was great. Yeah. That's where I met Unmi Postma. Yes, yes. she was a Dutch. Uh, Dutch Korean adoptee who was a journalist, but she had also done like a radio play of, of a sort related to her adoption and so that was brought or she kind of like um screen isn't the right word but she yeah you know right, played right. that cool. in, in yeah. that spy and yeah it was really fun was and so the person we're referring to as Mihi now goes by Kimura Piola okay Natalie Lemon. they live in um Montreal now they're from Belgium okay cool one of the first adoptees to probably the first adoptee to get media attention in Korea starting in the late 1990s. Mm -hmm. Wow, awesome. And also as a queer out person Mm -hmm. in Korea, Mm -hmm. which was quite rare at that time. Mm -hmm. Sounds incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was really amazed. I mean, like like for that particular historical moment, like she did a lot. And I think she, she, you know, because she had lived there for a while, had a lot of connections Mm -hmm. with people and um, not, you know, like Koreans who were interested in that whole story. and she had an award-winning film, experimental film, that was screening around. And, mm-hmm. and also did a lot of work with Francophone adoptees and uh, helped hundreds with birth family search before this was a thing, mm-hmm. before agencies were doing it, before there was ever a creation of a central authority to handle these things. You should with interview adoptees. her. <laughs> <laughs> like she's really, I mean, the more I think about it, it's like, yeah, because when I, when I first went to Korea, everyone was like, you have to meet Mihi. And when I met her, like, it all was like, oh my god, like, this is like, I don't know, I mean, at that time she already had like a this kind of reputation for being this incredible person, but mm-hmm. she also, you know, um, yeah, just had so many different kinds of connections through artwork, through the search stuff. And also she had been a founding member of the Belgian adoptee group and what was a kind of like umbrella group of European um, adoptee organizations in the early 1990s. So they had first, like, I can't remember how they all, they all met somehow through a South Korean progressive NGO in Europe somewhere. And it was like a diasporic kind of attempt to kind of create a diasporic network. But in Europe, there weren't many Korean immigrants except for adoptees. So these pretty young at that point adult adoptees met. And when they all went back to their respective countries, they all started these adoptee organizations. So it was, I think that was 1992, something like that. And, and then, also, so when then Mihi moved to Korea, she had all that those connections from Europe. And then when people came through, it was just a kind of like, yeah, she just she's a point. Yeah. yeah, she was just like this node. <laughs> and one of, one of the many co-founders of Goal. Right? Yes, okay. there were multiple co-founders. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the whole history of Korean <laughs> adoption lies with me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's true. Up until a certain point, Kimura, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know if there's any? Um, like archives of footage from that, from Spy Club or... Kimura is very good at archiving their work. So 
they have a lot of material from that time period. But I don't think any of those events at Spy Club, in my recollection, were recorded. Okay. Uh, in, in terms of non-photographic records. Alina, so if, if, I, if I get this right, you started your research in 1999, mm-hmm. is that right? Can you tell us a bit about how you first became aware or interested in adoptee experiences? So Stoker mentioned Khan, mm-hmm. the conference. Um, so that was my very first, um, well, actually, no, I take it back. It, okay, let me start from the beginning. <laughs> you probably went to one of the, yeah, the earlier, because that was like the third one or something. Well, like I that, didn't go. It? I didn't go to the Khan conference, but, you know, the in the, I just remember, I was like on Yahoo, and this is 1998, maybe, and I just started graduate school. Mm. And so um, I was Googling something with Korea, America, something, and this con website popped up, and I was, and it just said something like there are 150,000 children who are adopted, and I was like, what? <laughs> like I really, I never heard of it before, mm. and so I was just kind of like so confused that you know I was like I thought I was pretty like well versed in Asian American history and Korean American stuff, but then like all these other things started kind of like lining up. So I saw Tammy Chu's first film, Searching for Gohyang, just very randomly in a bar in New York that was uh, where a friend of mine was curating this um, experimental video series, and Tammy's film was one of them. And I watched it, and I was like, what the... I was like, what what the hell? Like, because I don't know if you've seen it, but it's very... It was probably, like, one of the first documentaries that just, like, lays it all out. It's just like... You know, this was like a kind of Korean system that exported all these children. Um, so that was also very eye-opening. And so those two things kind of like somehow fused in my mind and I just got incredibly curious. And then, yeah, all these other things started happening. The first gathering took place. So when I heard about the first gathering, because um, in New York, there's an organization called the Korea Society and they were one of the sponsors for the first gathering. Right which was in DC, and I knew someone at the Korea Society who was like, oh, again, like very, you know, happenstance was like, mentioned it. And so then I managed to um, contact Holt and asked if I could volunteer. And so I volunteered at the reception area for the first gathering. Yeah, it w- that was kind of the beginning. So you had to get, you had to get Holt's permission to volunteer. Yeah, because Holt was organizing that first gathering. Right. Yeah, but that's how I first heard about it, was just like, you know. But at the time, you know, I I remember distinctly, it was the number that was so striking, and then also that it was transracial. And then after I thought about it, I was like, oh yeah, I knew like at least two people when I was growing up who had been adopted. But you just don't, at that time, I didn't know what that meant. And I, I didn't have any context to put it into. So, and they just seemed like isolated individuals who I happen to know but seeing the number and then kind of thinking about the scale and what it meant for so many children from Korea to have been adopted into mostly white families it just kind of was like oh and so I um, at that time just kind of like assumed that it meant that there are all these adult Korean adoptees who are super politicized around right, yeah. <laughs> oh, you thought issues of race and yeah. identity. I just, oh, wow. I don't know, like in my, I was like, oh my God, this is like, I mean, the con website did not have any politic, political content in it. It was just purely descriptive. But for some reason in my mind, I was like, oh, well, surely there must be like some, you know. So it struck you as an, immediately as a political yeah. issue. But then the more reading I did, I was kind of like, oh no, it's supposed to, there's like no problems here. You know, it's just mm. like, you know, and then I started realizing that there were kind of, at that time, people who were really outliers to mainstream adoption research, which was almost all like social work or psychology and stuff, who were saying, actually race matters, uh, but they were so, really outliers. Mm-hmm. And this is well into like the early 2000s. And it, it took me a really long time to understand how people could possibly say that race didn't matter in these <laughs> adoptions. I was really like, like it just didn't make sense. And I was, and then you, if you look at some of the first studies that try to argue that it does matter, they have to, they have to go through these weird contortions to like, you know, provide the scientific rationale or justification for thinking about race. 
you know, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. You don't want to just assume, but it was really like, um, it was like this mental puzzle for me. I was like, how can they say it doesn't matter? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was, but then, you know, the more adoptees I met, I realized like, oh, it's really complicated because most of the adoptees I was meeting don't necessarily have any investment in a political discourse or even a, a discourse around racial identity. It's just more like, who am I? Right. You know? And it was very kind of like an individuated question around, you know, um, I'm now an adult. I ha have all these confusing questions about, you know, where I fit or what my his you know, personal biography is. But then it was kind of amazing to see, like, over the course of just, like, a few years, like, that whole shift mm. from um, not... I think, it, I think there wasn't really a language for it until, mm -hmm. like, the first gathering brought all these people together and so much came out mm. that I, most of which I just heard secondhand, but, like, so much came out about race, about identity, about gender, about family, obviously, mm. you know, and then also, like, sy systemic questions, you know, where because, actually, because Holt was hosting, so that people were saying, like, wait, <laughs> What's your role in all of this? You know, and so it kind of laid the 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 ground for all these other questions to get much more refined and kind of like, mm. you know, um, discussed much more overtly. That's that's really interesting. I think I I'm now realizing that I'd assumed that maybe your interest was through the kinship dimension because of the anth like because anthropology and it's interesting <laughs> that the first thing that really stood out for you was the politics of it yeah, is, yeah. so that's yeah i know the kinship yeah. so well that's that's a whole different <laughs> thing because kinship and anthropology is like oh my gosh um but no it wasn't mm. it actually wasn't the kinship part but of course it's such a central thing you know yeah yeah i don't know i think a lot of, i mean i think for all of us it's like wherever we're situated at a given moment like that's kind of how you formulate your interest and you know I was like in my late 20s living in New York and kind of like political in my own way around like social justice movement stuff so yeah that was kind of my first thing was like not actually thinking so much like oh there are kids being adopted by white adult parents mm. I was just thinking about like people who were like my age mm. you know who had totally different ways of seeing the world and that was interesting to me I think one of the things that, yeah, in terms of timing for for you, Alina, you came in at a time where not only was people weren't looking at Korean adoption in the way that she was, yeah. but also because all of these people, like myself, were her peers. Mm -hmm. And so those of us that were living in Seoul or in Korea at that time in the late beginning, mid to, to, to late to early 2000s, mid, mid 90s, we're the second generation known as the second generation of adoptees and so being the first to be politicized and it was just this time period when there were, were enough of us coming of age having the means to return to Korea and so that's where all of this I think really and it happened really I hate to use the word organically but it was just the timing was was very key as to whatever was happening in the world whatever was happening within our own patterns in our life patterns of suddenly Korea was an option to go to was an option to live that had to do with all this, like visa status, making it easier, all these things that sort of combined. And so people were coming back and, um, yeah, meeting each other because there was such a small community. And because, yeah, Mihi really was this center, central figure, especially for Europeans. And then um, people, it was so small, people, everybody kind of knew each other or heard of each other. And it was when you, you know, it was so easy to meet people. And I think if you at that time were somebody usually... Um, especially for the Americans, it was after you finished university, which for Europeans is very different, it was not necessarily the case. But people sort of, a lot of, became politicized at university in terms of racial politics and racial identity. And then coming back to Korea, you sort of trying to study Korean at a time when it was, wasn't was really cool, K-pop wasn't a thing, you know, Korea was not yet a cool, soft power country. But um, there were language programs that allowed people to come back. Yeah, when you're living there, I think as an adopted person, as a young person in your life, before you have you've sort of settled down into a career or whatever, or or a marriage and had children, you are at this time where you're willing to question all of these things about who you are and where you came from. And living in Korea is such a, at least for me, was such a pivotal experience. 
I don't think I ever could have come to certain um, insights had I been politically active as an Asian American or Korean American in the United States. It had to happen in Korea. Mm -hmm. And having it happen in Korea was just so, it sort of bonded you, I think, as an adopted person. You were bonded by other adoptees because you knew what it was like to be back in Korea. Whatever it was, whatever your journey was about, or whatever it is that you did during your time there, just being there really bonded people. Yeah, and I think what I saw too was that um, it was the generational thing mm -hmm. where, like Kim was saying, where um, adoptees who had, you know, adoptees are highly educated, so, you know, went to university, you know, uh, especially those who had a more humanistic or social science background and who had been politicized when they were in school coming to Korea, but then kind of like suddenly real, and you know, organic I think is a good word because they're, you know, it's kind of like the growth of these organic intellectuals who would mm -hmm. like learn stuff in school, didn't fit their experience, but then somehow being in Korea at mm -hmm. that moment and generationally having these bonds and having all these conversations, suddenly kind of piecing things together and being like, oh, wait, <laughs> you know, the things that I've learned about how to analyze power I can now yeah. see much more clearly yes. how yeah. it operates with adoption, yeah. you know? And that was a really kind of mm -hmm. momentous thing where it all just kind of like, um, yeah, came together through conversation. Right. And um, yeah, you get a bunch of highly educated people together, they'll kind of like figure, figure it out. out. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> Um, well, that kind of leads me, leads me to another question I had um, for you, Alina, which is basically that I feel like your writing and your research has really highlighted aspects of my lived experience that I didn't really have, I guess, the conceptual tools to think through before encountering your work, and your work has really been um, a really huge deal for me academically and also personally. Um, and I think that your work remains very connected to lived experiences while also really thinking through those really complex, complex logics um, and dimensions of adoption that you raise uh, in your book and in your uh, articles. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your process, just how you managed to foreground the lived experiences of adoptees so nicely, yet also really capture the complexity of all the multiple different logics and dimensions of adoption. Um, thank you so much for saying all those nice things. <laughs> um, makes me really happy to know that you find it valuable and um, meaningful, and I really appreciate it. Um, so, but I, it's a really hard question to answer. I feel like um, one thing that I, there are a couple of things that were really um, important for me when I started doing my research. One was that I had a conversation with a Korean-American um, person from LA, so Yoon Ro, who had a master's degree, uh, I don't remember what field, but she had um, organized an exhibition at the Korean-American mm. Museum a few years before I started doing my research and also had produced a documentary about her partner who was a Korean adoptee. So anyway, when I talked to her, the first, you know, one of the pieces of advice she gave me was, you know, when you're in uh, spaces with adoptees, they might assume that you're also adopted. So you should tell them right away that you're not. Because if you don't, <laughs> and they you know, share things with you, assuming that you have the have a similar experience, and then they find out that you're not, they're gonna feel like betrayed or, you know, kind mm -hmm. of like, like basically it's not a cool thing to do. And it had never even struck me as something to think about, but I really took it to heart. I was like, okay, like this is something that I really need to kind of mm -hmm. put out there immediately. And knowing, you know, as an anthropologist or trying someone trying to do ethnography, Usually you don't, that's not the first thing you try to do is like produce like clear difference with the person, with the people you're trying to, mm -hmm. you know, do research with. But I, I understood that it was like a really ethical mm -hmm. thing that I had to do. So, but once I, once I made that decision, I also realized that I actually didn't want to do like say, you know, like Kim Park Nelson has written an amazing book on, based on oral histories. Um, but I didn't, I didn't want to do oral histories. I didn't want to collect a lot of um, 
stories of adoption for a couple of reasons. One was I didn't actually feel like I was equipped to know how to deal with that kind of data as a person who was trained in anthropology and not in like some other field that seemed more appropriate, like psychology or something like that. Um, and also because um, I actually was much more interested in how adoptees were crafting like a more public um, identity as a collective. You know, I hoped a political one, but whatever that means, you know, that they were kind of trying to discover who they were as a group. Mm -hmm. So, which would of course entail some aspects of, you know, their quote unquote personal histories. But um, the other, the other formative thing was going to that first gathering and, you know, sitting in the reception area, just signing people in. And then when people went into their breakout sessions, so I went to like the public's big plenary events. But then in the breakout sessions, people were divided into um, groups based on year of adoption. And I was sitting there, and there were a couple other volunteers. I think they were adoptive parents. And so, like, no one was signing in anymore. It's just, like, quiet and empty. And we're all like, do-do-do, you know. And so they were like, oh, maybe we should go into some sessions. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went into one that was a cohort that was kind of, like, around my age. And I sat in the back, and, you know, there was a, it was really raw. It was really intense. And so after that, I was kind of like, I do not know what to do with this, you know? Mm -hmm. And I also realized that, like, I kind of felt like I shouldn't have been there, you know, because then there were some adoptive parents who were also in the room, and, like, it became clear very soon that, like, their presence was not cool because it was such a intense space of adoptees trying to figure out, like, who, like... Where are we? Who are we? What happened to us? Yeah, so that was another moment where I was like, oh, okay, I need to figure out how to use my position as someone who's not adopted, but who really wants to kind of privilege the work that adoptees are doing to craft this kind of um, sense of collectivity. Mm. And yeah, so that's kind of what I did as much as possible when I talked to people about my research. I was like, you know, I really just, you know, I would kind of be like, not interested in your personal history, please don't tell me. And then, you know, I just want, really want to know about, like, how this, at that time, community, movement, mm -hmm. whatever, was forming. Mm -hmm. So I remember I would talk to people who were kind of like, in some leadership or kind of like more public or organizational role, and be like, do you think a community exists? You know, and this is like, 2000 or 2001, you know, and they'd be like, I don't know, you know, because it was so mm. kind of just nascent and just kind of little pockets of activity. And then by the time, you know, I don't know, like just within a couple of years, people were like, oh yeah, community exists. It's like so clear to everyone. So that was a really like insightful moment where it's like, oh wow, like I've actually like witnessed this, this kind of historical unfolding, mm. you know, and then I really was like, okay, now that a community exists, this like network of adoptee groups and individuals who are connected in very disparate but kind of patterned ways. Then I made another decision as an anthropologist, which was to not anonymize um, people who participated in my work. So like Stoker's name is in there, like Mihi's name is in there, you know. And, and <clears throat> I gave people the option, but I was kind of like, you know, I feel like this is a really uh, significant history and I, I feel like people should get credit for the work that they've done to produce this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I kind of wanted to approach it that way. When I think back on that time, I think one of the things that Alina was able to do in terms of our community and how she was able to have access in a way mm -hmm. that I would say not many or any other researchers have been able to do. I think it's it's also her identity as a Korean-American, somebody who, I would say, also for me personally, trusted her in a way. I've met a lot of, a lot of researchers over the years, and some of them have been Korean-American or other adoptees even. And I would say it's very difficult to be able to establish some kind of trust. And there's something, I think, about her personality or just the way her approach was... I think easy for a lot of people that I know of and myself included mm. to trust. And I think maybe it was an age thing too because it wasn't like she was so much older than we were or younger or seemed less experienced. You know, it was more of a pure kind of not like I'm doing my 
PhD field work on you people. <laughs> it didn't feel like that at all because she was so integrated into the community. Yet mm-hmm. I know you were doing things for, with OKF or doing things with other Korean organizations that were facilitating these very early programs for adoptees. But she was involved in all of this stuff. But everybody knew, you know, she's not adopted, that she's doing research, involved with, with Co-Root and, and just in a, commi- a committed way that nobody mm-hmm. had ever done before. I mean, in anthropology, <clears throat> there's an anthropologist, George Marcus, who talks about, he has, an, he has a somewhat famous article about the anthropologist and the, pers- and the people that they study. And he talks about um, complicity, which he, he defines as kind of like being complicit with each other. You know, it's almost like being co-conspirators. So that's kind of how I thought about my research, which was kind of like, there's a shared question that I have with adoptees. I mean, and it, it kind of came out of what I was learning from adoptees, kind of like, and one of the shared questions was like, how did all this happen? <laughs> how did Korean adoption happen? Like, how did mm-hmm. it produce so many adoptees? And so I did like archival research to kind of like get at what are the origins of Korean adoption. And I really did want to do, and, and also in terms of the origins of the Korean adoptee community. And I really thought of that as like, you know, someone has to kind of tell the story <laughs> in some fashion. It might not be like the most like complete, comprehensive, or even true history, but it's a place to start. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and also when I was, Kim's reminding me, <clears throat> when I was in Korea, yeah, doing field work with the Overseas Koreans Foundation or Korut or Incas, I thought of my role kind of as like an interpreter of what Koreans we're doing and thinking mm-hmm. about adoptees and kind of sharing that as much as possible with adoptees because there's a lot of you know cultural linguistic and other kinds of gaps mm-hmm. and a lot of mistrust mm-hmm. between adult adoptees in Korea and some of these institutions I did sort of think I'm, I and actually I didn't I didn't kind of go the other direction and share adoptee stuff with the organizations but I really thought of myself as kind of like trying to explain Mm-hmm. Like, what was going on here? Because there were so many groups emerging at that time in Korea to respond to adoptee quote-unquote needs, mm-hmm. um, and I some of them were really misguided, or you know, or they were confusing because of some of the assumptions that Native Koreans had about adopt who adoptees were, and you know how to place them as Korean or not Korean, and you know some of that appears in my book. So. My position as a kind of Korean American who a lot of the Koreans that I, who are working with adoptees, they would view me as like more Korean, you know, and so they would share things with me that they probably wouldn't share with adoptees. <laughs> so that informed like how I, how I thought about like the whole scene and the lay mm-hmm. of the land, but also, you know, what um, I could sort of like try to interpret some of that for adoptees. We've touched a little bit on, we haven't used the term adoptee kinship, but um, Alina, you mentioned adoptee kinship and what you call contingent essentialism in your book. And I'm wondering if you can explain what you mean by that. And then to Stoker, what what does adoptee kinship mean to you? Okay, so adoptee kinship um, is my way of describing what, what some adoptees would tell me or describe in terms of their bonds with each other. And then also what I kind of witnessed in adoptee spaces. And, you know, I would have to say very much conditioned by the fact that I'm not adopted, that, you know, there, there's a sort of thing happening that I'm not a part of, you know. But yeah, I mean, adoptees that I interviewed would be like, especially if an older generation would talk about like this kind of instantaneous bond that they experienced meeting other adoptees. And that's actually from Susan Cox, who organized the first gathering. And so for her, like this, this, this is what she wanted to create. Mm-hmm. you know, was a space for the, all these instantaneous bonds. And of course, you know, it's a bit romanticizing, but there's certainly something there in terms of how adoptees were saying, like, yeah, it's like you feel so much like an alien or out of place or, you know, kind of like plopped in from nowhere, and then you meet another adoptee and suddenly it's like, boom, you know. So that I wanted to capture in the idea of adoptee kinship, but also more in terms of um, theories of, of how 
um, you know, of what kinship is in um, anthropological terms at least, which is kind of always attending to this dialectical relationship between biology and the social. So with adoptees, obviously like the biological connection is elsewhere. You know, it's, it's disconnected from the, from the familial, um, primary familial relationships. So I saw adoptee kinship as kind of like taking that primary rupture and kind of producing a different kind of kinship that adoptees would, you know, actually say like, this is, this is more primary, mm-hmm. you know, than any other kind of relationship I've ever had or, you know, um, and in relation to contingent essentialism, that that's a kind of key part of understanding what adoptee kinship, how adoptee kinship is comprised because so many um, adoptees would, in their conversations, not so much in interviews, but in their conversations, especially when you have adoptees from all different parts of the world meeting, they'd be like, oh, I could have grown up in France. Oh, that's so cool. You know, I wish I was like French and not just like a boring American, or you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. or like I, I grew up in like this tiny town, no Koreans. What if I had grown up in LA? You know, like I never even heard of the LA riots until like many years later. There's all these kind of like counterfactuals about like what if this, what if that, what if I had stayed in Korea? And I feel like all of those, you know, that kind of constitutes this collective imaginary of like, yeah, the what if. Like I, so there's so much contingency in how mm-hmm. adoptees um, reflect on how they came to be who they are, which in some ways you could argue is true of everyone adopted or not but it's so foregrounded. And so I thought about how the role of all this storytelling and exchanging of information is sometimes it's, yeah, it's just about the raw kind of feelings around it, but a lot of it is just like, hey, that's like, like, like as a group, like we, we're all kind of transposable, you know, like I could have, and that's actually a quote from one of these Swedish adoptees who's like, you know, I could be me, she could be her, we could, you know, kind of like Mm -hmm. very, gendered pronouns, but you got the idea that like, you know, there's a kind of transposability that is, on the one hand, you could say, oh, that's how commodification and adoption works. On the other hand, you could say like, oh, but it creates like an endless, endlessly ramifying set of possibilities that's actually almost not liberating, but kind of like interesting and, Mm. you know, and so, um, so I think adoptee kinship kind of like rests on this idea that you know, contingency defines in many ways who adoptees are and that um, that contingency I saw as kind of like being essentialized ironically because in a context where like the sort of non-contingent relations of blood or kinship, you know, in the absence of those, then you in, in their stead you have these kind of contingent mm. relations and possibilities. The second part of the question, in terms of what is kinship for for me, I think that what Alina just mentioned about this idea of a collective imaginary, I think as an adopted person, certainly anybody has that, but with us, and especially being in Korea, you know, you are meeting all of these people from like 15 other countries or 14 other countries, and you're positioning yourself based on what you know, and then you're meeting somebody from, as an American, I'm meeting somebody from... Denmark, I'm meeting somebody from Belgium, I'm meeting somebody from France, and it's like, holy shit. And we're all from Korea, and we all had this, like, very, um, you know, it's this idea of chance. You know, you just think, yeah, it's this contingency. Like, this could have been me. This could have been, oh, you know, you find out sort of what year were you adopted. Maybe you were born. You don't, maybe, most don't know precisely when you were born, so you can kind of bond over when did you leave, when were you adopted, who did you you know, what agency, and you can find kinship between your agencies, the year of adoption, all of these different ways. And I think that it's a way for, uh, it was also a way for us to create a new kind of way of being Korean, right? And so in terms of also adoptee identity in Korea, it kind of coincided with, I think Koreans also accepting more of what is our diaspora and what does that look like and who belongs. That could include mixed race Koreans, adopted Koreans. And, um, you don't, as an adopted person, I think you don't, whether you like a, another adoptee or not, you know, that's strictly personal, or not maybe strictly, but because you know you share this background and you come from this kind of system that's very convoluted, 
you share something and it, you can call it kinship that you don't share with other people you don't share with other adopted people you maybe can transracially and to some degree but regardless of your socioeconomic status your upbringing your educational status the country you were adopted to the language that you speak you all have these certain things in common with a finite number of people hmm. and if you're in Korea meeting some of these people it's a pretty powerful thing that you share and then you create a kind of this kinship through the limited numbers of who you are as well and and the fact that you're all in Korea and to me that's a very sort of important thing there's always been this tension between especially you, you feel it at gatherings as well there's always a tension between adoptees who live in Korea and the adoptees that don't so you have like adoptees which is the smallest number who have spent more than like a year living in Korea people that visit frequently or people that have never been to Korea and the majority are people that have never been to Korea and so to be a member within a minority of minorities living in Korea it's a very powerful kind of meeting of minds because I think you have to have a certain sensibility to uproot your life and come to Korea especially 20 years ago before Korea had was a like country worth going to Right. Mm. Now it's a totally cool country to go to. It's like, yeah, you're going to Korea, that's awesome. You know, and back 20 years ago, that certainly wasn't the case. Mm. And so to be among other people, like-minded people in this certain way, which is based on our Korean origins, nothing maybe else, it's kind of a powerful thing. So even, I know for me, people that I might not like personally, I feel like, well, we share something and I kind of know what your story is or whatever. So I have some empathy for you that I don't have for other people. I share something with you even though we weren't raised together that I don't share with other people. That reminds me, um, Thomas Park Clement, I think it was him, I quote him in my book saying something like, it's, it's kind of like whether you want to or not, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, if you're an adoptee from Korea, like you're a member of this club. Like if you're adopted from Korea, you're a member. And I was kind of like, wow, you know, yeah. like it's, but you'll be accepted whether, yeah. like you'll be accepted unconditionally by this group, depending on, you know, your level of participatory desire, or whatever, <laughs> regardless of whether you want to be, yeah. you will be, and that could be, oh, you know, people saying, I don't want to be lumped in with all the other adoptees, but well, you could say that as, to me, that perspective is very othering of your own self as an adopted person because our community is so different. Mm -hmm. Not all adoptees are this way, mm -hmm. but a lot of adoptees who haven't had experiences with other adoptees might have that attitude because they don't know, or they've internalized this idea of what an adopted person is like. So Stoker, you lived in Korea for roughly 20 years. Um, there's obviously so much to talk about, um, but could you start by telling us some of the things that really surprised you about living there? You know, I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> um, well, just as some kind of, I think, context is, because I've met so many adoptees over the years of living in Korea, and as I was saying before, the people that come back, I think, have something, a sensibility or an inclination that maybe is less typical, let's say, even in from a broader idea of like what makes you a human, right? And... My first uh, three years, though, that I lived in Korea from 1995 until 1998, I had no sense of my place as an adopted person at all. And so I described myself at that time as very being internally white. And all of my friends were either Korean Americans or white expats living in, in Korea at the time. And there wasn't an adopted community there. And then I went to grad school and got a master's degree and still was not interested in anything having to do with adoptee-ness at all. I think I was a really sort of late learner, slow, not slow learner, but late bloomer in terms of coming to understanding my own adoption after having lived in Korea for many years, then gone to grad school and I was interested in Korea, like Korean studies, not Korean-American studies. And then because of my 
friendship and relationship with Mihi, who we talked about before, that's really how I got politicized, was through my relationship with her and seeing what she was doing. And so I was a very reluctant person to get involved in the community because I think at the time I was like, oh, I'm not like all those other adoptees. I was one of those people, kind of a, a snobby, sort of like, I'm not like all of you, but there weren't that many of us at the time. What do you mean by not like? Like, what is the stereotype, I suppose, of the adoptee that you're not like? I, in my mind at, at that time, I think it was this, in my, again, in my mind, it was people who um, were really needy, were really highly emotional, and maybe to some degree also really white in, in their minds. Because even though what I just said, I think because I lived in Korea and I was in Hawaii for, I had been removed already from the white sort of mainstream for since my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And I think it made me uncomfortable to meet uh, adoptees who were coming to Korea for the first time and me encountering them, encountering Koreans, right? Or othering Koreans, for me to see adoptees othering Koreans was too close to home because I knew that I was like that mm-hmm. when I first came to Korea. And so I really wanted to distance myself from that, kind of thinking like, oh, well, I'm over that now. And so to be around other adoptees and see them struggle was something I wanted to avoid and I wanted to place myself away from that because it made me so uncomfortable knowing that I was also that kind of person. And to see it in front of you is, is painful. It's emotionally painful because mm-hmm. you feel so much for these people. But then you're like, you know, it's too much drama. It's, there's just too much stuff going on. And it's just difficult to deal with. And so I distanced myself from being involved for a while. It was kind of through Mihi that I saw what she was going through and met people that she knew. And I didn't come um, to get involved in the community really actively until 2004. And then I think that was even for me reluctant, sort of. And then it was just like, from then on, (laughs) I was pretty involved after that for about 10 years. What made you feel like that sort of level of involvement or that type of involvement, what made you feel like that was coming to its end? Or maybe you don't see it as having ended, but... Oh, well, in terms of ASK and my personal relationship with ASK, well, ASK, we officially um, retired ASK in 2000... I think we sent the letter out in 2017. One of the, the challenges with doing activist work in Korea is because the community is so transient. And so a lot of the, the founding members of ASK had, had moved and then um, trying to uh, find leadership that could be sustained was a challenge for our organization. Yeah. And so I think ultimately that was one of the main reasons we decided to retire ASK. And it's not saying that it was strictly a leadership issue. A lot of it was that what we had first done as an organization we felt like could continue and it's, as, as it certainly has, but maybe under something, a, a new incarnation of what does activism, activism, adoptee activism in Korea look like now? Mm-hmm. And some, maybe something that can build upon the work that ASK did, but have something that maybe doesn't have the baggage, you know, quote unquote, of ASK. And there is an organization now, Speak, mm-hmm. that hopefully is um, able to build upon what ASK did and then go into a new direction because there certainly is work to be done. It's like you establish your own, you know, you have a seedling or something and then you go plant that in another place and it has that that DNA of the, the old, old groups, but you are able to grow into something that's very new that you can embrace as your own identity that doesn't have to necessarily have an association. It has a lineage, mm-hmm. but it's something very new. And so I'm hope, I think with ASK, we wanted to see that also as a possibility. And ASK was a very important organization. We had a lot of baggage, though. So I have a question. So is the baggage having to do with um, how ASK started and like the reputation it had in the beginning? Yeah. And I think at this point in time, a lot of that is irrelevant. And so what I saw during my last maybe five years of ASK is, or five years in Korea, is a, is a huge shift. Because there were about like 10 years where kind of people knew knew each other, people knew who was active in the community and active meaning like either you knew who people were or they were politically active or socially active. And then something happened where 
maybe a lot of the old school sort of people left. But I think there was a kind of weird break at some point where a lot of more, more younger adoptees, mainly if you look at like the time periods at the height, like people born in the mid 80s and later started coming back to Korea and didn't really know the history or who these players were. Whereas there was a time where everybody knew, kind of people knew who the play, yeah, like I said, who the players were. And then there was this break where people didn't know, like say, do you know this person? They're like, no. Did you know this? And they're like, no. Mm -hmm. And so there was this like gap, I think, in history, in our history. And so in terms of our reputation and ask, I don't think young people have any idea. But in my mind, I still kind of see it as like, we have a lot of stigma, I think, with that organization that were, were very negative, not only because we were um, a, the first political organization, and the first organization really to de-emphasize our personal stories. We would never talk about our backgrounds during interviews. That was part of what we decided to do as an organization, which appealed to me a lot. Because I didn't want people to think that, oh, the stereotype of you're politically active or you want reform because you're unhappy or you're the angry adoptee. But it's totally changed because now, anger, people are like, yes, embrace your anger. We should be angry, but dude, back in the day, that was a bad thing to be angry, right? And so we got labeled as angry adoptees. We got labeled as angry lesbians, which also was not true. It was like, people would be like, oh, all of you guys are angry lesbians and ask. And I was like, huh? Where are you getting this from? And yes, there were some queer people in, in ask, but I think also there was a stigma because ask was really led by women. It was a women-led organization. And I think there was a lot of prejudice and discriminate or pre prejudice because of that and so people had other adoptees had certain ideas about ask that there's like this militant lesbian it's like what and so what right and now <laughs> but today people would be like so what but in the past it was very negative people would always say negative things to us like oh if i'm a dude i can't be an ass or something like that oh yeah wow. we got that stuff all the time wow. but again this is this gap yeah. i think don't people don't a lot of people don't know that or don't remember that and so in my mind though I kind of I carry that baggage mm. with me can corroborate like at that time it was like you know um, and if any adoptee talked about their personal history went to exactly neither like that's all it was about yeah. you know so and then just in terms of like you know more transnational publics and kind of like the politics of testimony and you know all that a similar thing happened, like in say U.S. discourses around adoption. It's like, oh, adoptees are just unhappy, and and uh, but I do think that things have changed so much. Now. Right. It's like the kind of like exactly foregrounding of personal trauma in order to underwrite a political position is so normative that um, it almost like at a certain moment, I think, like a decision like asked made started to seem strange, you know. And people like Jane Tranko would be like, I am angry, and I'm adopted, and I think this is messed up, you know? So that, I think, was a really interesting shift. And, and, um, and I, you know, I think generationally, it's also a shift. Mm -hmm. Both, yeah. like, I would say, maybe even in global culture because of social media, like in right. South Korea, too. It's right. like, you know, ideas of, like, shame and keeping things kind of under wraps is much less prevalent mm -hmm. and that the kind of like um, you know there you know if speak or some other group that has a kind of I don't know more millennial you know uh, perspective you know they're dealing with a very changed social landscape right now and Korea's changed so much and yeah yeah so all of it has to or that activism that ASK was involved with definitely is a certain period of time yeah. to be put in a certain context. Mm -hmm. But like so important, I mean like, because, and I mean just the ne some of the negative reactions that Kim mentioned just speaks to how radical it was, you mm -hmm. know, yeah. for Ask to start framing things in a certain way and to articulate them. And it does feel gratifying to know that things that we were advo advocating for now people, it's a no-brainer for people, right? Especially this connection or this natural alliance with single mothers in, in Korea. But, you know, yeah, 20 years ago, that was not a natural alliance because both communities were invisible. And now, I don't know what 
number of single moms days are being celebrated but the leader of that organization now, I was reading something this year got some sort of national recognition or, or something and it's just like wow you could not have imagined that even 10 years ago and and now that natural alliance people are like yeah of course but it wasn't like that mm-hmm. it is gratifying to know that our, our organization helped establish that relationship which is so important and is now so sort of normal How much do you think that 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 level of awareness and normalization has occurred in Western receiving countries? Like, do you think that translates to like conversations in the states about adoption? In terms of my stance on international adoption, I'm not 100% against it, but there's some very real. I have some very real reasons for being seeing it as being highly problematic, mm-hmm. and at the same time. I know, and I've always known, and I think in ASK, we always knew that we will be on the minority side of that opinion, no matter what. At least in my lifetime, I always thought that people are going to advocate for adoption because it's always about saving a child. It's always about saving this individual, and this kind of mindset isn't going to go away in countries that adopt children. And I don't see that, in my lifetime, I didn't see that. And knowing that my opinion was going to be in some ways, like lo- the losing opinion or the minority opinion. I think if you just, for me, I needed to just accept that, knowing that I'm always going to run into people who I might uh, ally with politically on a, so many other levels, but we're like queer people or other people of color, or we might have a, same, a similar political mindset, but when it comes to adoption, being like, or feminism, being like, what's, well, what's wrong with that? people saying to me, like, what's wrong with adopting a child? You're saving a child. And me just saying, well, sorry, dude, but you just don't get it, and I'm not going to explain it to you. And we might not see eye to eye on this this opinion, even though we might see eye to eye on so many other things. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I just acknowledge that I'm going to be in that position and that that's okay. I would just say that I think... Um I feel like over the past two years, and this is not based on research, just looking at like comments on like articles related to adoption, I feel like there has been a slight shift, mm. if only because like those comments allow for, I don't know how well they're moderated, but say like a New York Times article or something, there seems to be much more tolerance and acceptance of adoptee voices, like people who say they are speaking as an adopted person um, when it comes to being critical of you know, adoption as a system. And of course you always see then people who are like, oh, you aren't grateful, or you know, the typical reactions to a critical voice. But um, but at the same time, you also see people defending mm-hmm. the critical voice of an adoptee online. So I feel like there has been a shift in the US where the diversification of opinions and a bit more nuance and sophistication Mm -hmm. in thinking about the power dynamics is kind of like somewhat around and available for people to draw on and to kind of like at least reflect on if not fully get. Um, And then in South Korea too, I think there's there's been a major shift Mm -hmm. in how people, uh, you know, Koreans on social media um, think about adoption where in the past, Vast, the vast majority would be like, oh, we were so poor, we had to do it, da, da, da. And now I, you know, I mean, this is just one of the few ways that I think the adult adoptee presence in South Korea has mm. changed South Korean society. I mean, it's like the activism, you know, creating, like, legislation, you know, shifting public opinion around um, single mothers, mm. you know, creating, like, forcing government policies, and then also kind of, like, um, reactions among Koreans about like what adoption means and uh, what it means for South Korean society to still have children leaving mm-hmm. when they have one of the lowest birth rates in the world, you know, and when um, women continue to be, like South Korea is continually ranked like amongst like the worst OECD countries in terms of gender equality. Like all those things are having ramifying effects Mm. in terms of how people think about why adoption continues and what it means and if it's good. But in in the past it may have been like, oh, like we need to stop adoption now and 
it may have been good in the past, but it's bad now. But I feel like there's more critical thinking about what it was in the past mm-hmm. and what adult adoptees, what produced the, the adoptees who are now adults, you yeah. know. Um, so you see some of that with like the deported adoptees mm-hmm. like Adam Crapser, you know, or um, Philip Clay who uh, passed away by suicide. You know, highly publicized cases where, again, in the comments you see like people in South Korea being super critical about what this decades-long system has been about. You also mentioned in your podcast interview with for Adapted and oh. in, um, did you listen your, to that? Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> and your uh, uh, should be <laughs> your article this is Christine. Christina Higgins. Christina Higgins, sorry. Um, That there's a kind of possibility of forging kinship with other marginalized groups. Oh, yeah. Or um, liminal, I think you call it in Mm -hmm. in the article. Um, Can you talk, I guess, broadly about how you see being adopted as sort of maybe allowing for or creating those sorts of bonds with other marginalized groups? I guess Korea was the context that Mm -hmm. you were speaking of. Well, it was in the context of Korea, and I think, again, through Ask, there is this natural, natural... Uh, alliance with marginalized groups in Korea and so I think it's because adoptees being um, you know not sort of the standard variation standard variety Korean right and so other Koreans also finding themselves outside of that standard variety Korean whether it's like oh you're a single parent choosing to raise your child that already puts you on the outside of of Korean society on so many levels Let's say you're a mixed-race Korean. Okay, you're also put on the outside. Let's say you're a queer Korean. You're also put on the outside. Let's say you're a Korean who, um, you know, has been in trouble or gotten arrested or something or is like a, a teenager who has problems or whatever. Like, you're just, all these groups are marginalized in Korean society. And I think, unlike many Western countries, there wasn't a lot, there hasn't been support for all these marginalized people. And so I think the issues in community that marginalized people have to have to deal with are very similar, right? And how you're not a part of mainstream society, but what you can do to support your own communities and the kinds of grassroots organization that has to occur. occur. And so I think I saw a lot of, there were a lot of commonalities in being a liminal people in Korean society. And again, it's, you know, in Korea, 10, 15 years ago, it's not like in a lot of um, Western countries where marginalized groups have support or had experience, like grassroots experience and create all this stuff. Was like a lot of it was around labor movements and things like this, but not about being out societal outliers in the same way. And so that's something I think that's also ongoing in Korea. You can see it with what's happening with the Me Too movement in Korea, the LGBTQ rights movement in Korea, all of these things, which are pretty, pretty new. And I think it's been very interesting to see this evolution in the past 20 years in Korea of what it what is allo- what is permissible to be labeled as Korean, right? right? And so, um, you know, in the past, I think Koreans also were just like if you're you're Korean if you speak Korean, and if you don't speak Korean, like that's the identifying marker. And then you're you know how do you present your Asianness? Like what does it look like? But if you can speak Korean and you look East Asian, we'll accept you as being Korean. So as an adopted person not speaking Korean, like you're not really Korean. Mm. Or it's like, what's a real, real Korean? You know, we have all these ways to identify as a Korean Korean. But that's changed so much now. And I think in Korean society, people realize that there's lots of different kinds of Koreans. And I don't think 20 years ago that was really among Koreans. That was just like Koreans are a certain thing. We are a certain kind of people. We look like this, we speak like this, and we act like this. And I don't think that's the case now. And I think that's just a much more realistic view of the reality of Koreanness today. And so it's it's interesting to be also a part of that and to see Koreans be more accepting of adoptees as being real Koreans. Okay, and then for both of you, with with regard to adoption research, what would you like to see more of? What do you think are the sort of neglected aspects or dimensions? I think it would be very interesting to look at adopted Koreans and their interpersonal relationships with Koreans. And so how many adoptees marry Korean nationals? Mm -hmm. 
or how many adoptees marry Korean Americans or Korean Europeans. And I think that that's a very interesting thing to look at. Yeah, I think that that would be a very interesting exploration. Whether or not people are, are living in Korea or are living in other countries, but who they choose as their intimate partners. And when an adopted person chooses a Korean, someone of Korean origin to partner mm. with, I think that's really fascinating. And to like, listen to maybe dating history or, I, I think that whole, um, the interpersonal relationships that adoptees have is very interesting to look at mm. in terms of identity and, and patterns, attraction, mm. levels of, like how are you, what are you looking for if you're making a family? I think that's, that would be really fascinating. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that, um, you know, just in the short period that I did my dissertation research and wrote my book, you know, like adoptees I knew shifted dramatically in some of their ideas, you know, in terms of their life course. And so any uh, research is, you know, pretty narrow in its temporality. And like, but the whole adoptee life, I'm sure like, I mean, I, w I would love to see, I don't know if longitudinal is the right word, but, you know, some some kind of work that looks at the kind of uh, like a, just a longer term, long durée mm. patterns in um, things like intimacy or you know ideas about family or you know um, all of that. I think would be really interesting. Um, but you know, I was trying to think of areas that I other areas that would be um, exciting. And every time I thought of something, I realized I knew someone who was doing research on it. And, but, but that's just to say that I think it's like there's so much, so many good scholars mm -hmm. doing work in, particularly in Korean adoption studies. And, um, you know, like critical adoption studies is now like people are using that term, which is, I think, fantastic. Mm -hmm. So um, just in terms of adoption study or critical adoption studies and transnational or Korean adoption studies, um, I think there's some really excellent scholars especially younger people, many of whom are also adoptees. And so that's really exciting. And um, I mean, I, I kind of like, I'm just super interested in the history of adoption. So I feel like there's a lot more that could be done on um, just the inst institutional history, some of which might require like major shifts in some of the adoption agencies. I don't know, existence <laughs> to get at archives. But, you know, I think that there's a lot more that could be told about particularly the period in like the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, I remember there's a scholar from Germany who's doing work on the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s in, mm -hmm. in Korean adoption history. So, you know, there are, it's kind of great. Like it's a really, really great uh, moment, I think when, you know, like people like Kim Park Nelson and me and a few other people were doing adoption, like what, what's now called critical adoption studies. And you just don't know, like, if it'll just be like a few people, a handful of people, but like, you know, the fact that there's more younger generation, you know, mm -hmm. up and coming people is really great and very exciting. And, you know, going forward, adoption studies out of Korea is not going to end because in the foreseeable future, when the Koreas reunify, there are going to, going to be a lot of babies up for adoption. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that develops. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast, or Twitter at Adopted Feels. And if you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes, or better yet, write us a review on iTunes, and or support us through Patreon.